chapter 4. We are continuing our exploration of the Gospel of John, and we began in chapter 4 last week with the woman at the well. We're going to continue looking at that story this morning. Over the years, I've had some very different experiences in sharing my faith with those that do not know Jesus. When I was in eighth grade, I had a really good friend, and he was from India. He was a Hindu. He came over to my house almost every day to play basketball. Like I said last week, our house was Grand Central Station for all my middle school friends. This was when we lived in Texas. And we were getting ready to move to Colorado. And so it was just a few days before we were planning to move. And there were boxes in my room. And we were taking a break from playing basketball. And my Hindu friend came into my room. And there was an open Bible on my desk. And he picked up the open Bible. And he started to read it. And he began to ask me questions. And the good evangelist that I was, guess what I did? I froze. I didn't know what to say. I got the cat has your tongue syndrome. And so I hemmed and hawed and tried to change the subject. And eventually we went out and played basketball. And the next day I moved to Colorado. And to this day I've never seen him since. And I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of frustration. I felt like a huge failure because I blew an awesome opportunity to share the gospel with someone who needed Christ. Now, there's been other times where I've been in the line at Walmart. And although I've never given a full-blown gospel conversation or a gospel presentation, there have been times where I have prayed with a person in line. There's times where I've told the person that I would be praying or that Christ loved them. And those are the times where you're really just planting seeds. You don't have the time with 15 people behind you to go into how to get saved. You just don't have time sometimes. You can just plant seeds. There's times I've gone door-to-door witnessing, whether it's on a mission trip or whether it's at times of my life, and I've had the, the door slammed in my face and people cuss me out when I've tried to share with them the gospel. The very first time we went to India... I had an opportunity to share the gospel on a porch with these two people and this witch doctor lady came over and tried to interrupt things and got all crazy. And so there's been times where I've shared the gospel with a crazy witch doctor trying to interrupt things. And there's been those glorious times where I've actually sat down with a person and explained the gospel and God birthed faith into their heart and I've had the joy of being able to baptize them in our baptistry. See, I'm not an expert when it comes to sharing my faith. As a matter of fact, I've probably failed more times than I have succeeded in sharing my testimony and sharing my faith. And I wonder how many of you struggle with sharing your faith. How do you struggle? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so uncomfortable for us to open our mouths and tell other people about Jesus? Why are we so fearful? Why do we not share our faith? Well, the last thing I want to do this morning is to lay a guilt trip on you all to make you feel bad because you're not sharing your faith. 
I can't motivate you to share your faith. There's got to be a deeper motivation than guilt or fear. And I'm going to leave you in suspense this morning on what that motivation is because we will see it unfold before us in our story before us at the woman at the well. But what did we see last week? We saw a desperate, lonely, sinful, ostracized woman whom Jesus gave the satisfying gift of eternal life, this living water. And if you remember what happened last week, Jesus transformed her from a sinner into a worshiper. And now she's been set free by the living waters of Jesus. She's had her, her sin exposed. If you remember, we talked about sin being that, that cesspool, that stagnant wickedness that resides deep in our hearts that we need cleansed out by Jesus and his gift of, of living water that flows in us. And so she's a transformed woman. She had come face to face with the great I am. And the question we've got to ask is, okay, how is this transformed woman going to respond now that she's been changed, now that she's been turned from a sinner into a worshiper? How is she going to respond? Is she going to go along her merry way? Is she going to think, well, this is a kind of a weird experience with this man that knew who I was? Is she going to rush headlong back into sin? Is she just going to forget about everything that happened? What's she going to do? Well, here's the main point of our passage this morning. And the scripture tells us what she does. Transformed sinners joyfully tell others that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Transformed sinners joyfully tell others that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And let's see this unfold. Let's see this transformed sinner joyfully tell others that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And it really unfolds for us in three scenes, three movements. And here's movement or scene number one. An invitation to come and see. An invitation to come and see. Let's pick up in John chapter 4, starting in verse 27. This is right on the heels of last week where Jesus confronts her. He's the great I am. He's given her living water. He's transformed her into a worshiper. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jesus and the woman were alone at the well. And where were the disciples? They were off searching for kosher food. Because remember, they're, they're in an area that's not quite kosher. And so they come back. And they are shocked to see Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, talking with a Samaritan woman. And if you remember from last week, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. So Jesus broke a social barrier by talking to a Samaritan, but he was talking to a woman. 
You would dare not talk to a woman in public, even your own wife. But they know that the master knows best, and so they're not going to dispute with Jesus. They're not going to question Jesus. They're just shocked that he's talking with this woman, this woman with the shady past, this woman at the well. But what does the woman do? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went into the town. Now you may think, well, that's just an incidental bit of information that John gives us. She left her water jar. But I want you to think about the symbolism of her leaving her water jar. We don't want to over-allegorize this because we we can sometimes get into over-symbolism, but I just want you to think about what the water jar represents. The water jar that she left represents her life. What did she do every single day? She came to the well with her water jar to get water day after day. But she leaves that water jar. What did she do to try to fill her life day after day? She came to the well of relationship with man after man after man, married five times, living with a guy, trying to get her well filled, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find self-esteem, trying to find purpose in relationship after relationship. And so when she leaves her water jar and she goes back to the town, it's a symbolic way of saying she is leaving her life of sin behind She's been changed. She no longer has to find satisfaction in men. She's found the source of living water in Jesus. She's been confronted with sin. She's been exposed. She's been changed. And now she leaves and goes back to the town. This is none other than repentance. Let me just say this up front. There is no true, authentic salvation without repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance means that you leave your life of sin, that you hate your life of sin, that you mourn over your sin, that you're grieved and bothered by your sin so much so that you you turn from that sin. And as you turn from that sin and you turn towards Christ, you begin to have new thoughts and new attitudes and new affections and new ways of thinking of things and new attitudes and your whole life has been totally changed. And it doesn't mean that you're not that, that you're perfect and that you never sin. It just means that you've encountered Christ and those things that, you've, that, that, that you wanted to find meaning in in the past that were sinful, you find those things to be disgusting. You find those things to be meaningless and you've turned from those and you've found in Christ your satisfaction. You've repented. Have you repented? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from your sin and turn toward Christ to find ultimate purpose and meaning and satisfaction and joy. There's some irony going on here in this story. When did she come to the well? At noon, to avoid all contact with people. She didn't want to be embarrassed. She didn't want to feel guilty. She was ostracized, so she came when nobody else was there. But now what does she do? She goes back to the town, gets right in the thick of it, and tells everybody, come and see the man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? This is her personal testimony. 
Now, she doesn't know exactly all the things that happened to her, and she doesn't have all her theological ducks in a row, but she does know that she's come in contact with Jesus, and he's changed her life, and she can't help but tell everybody, you've got to come see this man. You've got to come see what he's done for me. You've got to see how he's changed me from the inside out. I am a new woman. Come and see. An invitation to come and see. And I wonder, do you have that same passion to invite others to come and see what Jesus has done in your life? Do you tell others about the change that Christ has made in your life? Are you inviting others to come and see? Is it so deeply wondrous to you that God has transformed you from the inside out that you you can't bottle it up but it's just got to come exploding out to others you see here's why we don't share the gospel I bet you 80% of you in this room know how to tell another person the gospel you know the bible You know the gospel story. You know what to say. You know what to say about sin. You know what to say about Jesus. It's not for lack of facts or information that we don't share because all of us have it. The reason we don't share is for a a few reasons, but let me just give you the main reason. The reason we don't share is because we've become so bored with the gospel ourselves, it no longer mesmerizes us. We're no longer enthralled by the fact that Christ has changed us. We're no longer amazed that Jesus would transform us. It's become boring. It's become stale. And we don't want to just go tell people what Christ has done for us because we just take our our salvation for granted. And we fear men. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. We're afraid of being considered a fanatic. We're afraid of what people are going to say. We don't want to inconvenience people. We don't want to come off as weird. And so we'll just not share because really at the end of the day, we I'll be honest with you, at the end of the day, we don't love Jesus and we don't love other people. That's really the bottom line. We are not amazed at what Christ has done for us, so much so that we can't help but telling other people. So what's the motivation for us to share? Is it guilt? I got to share. Is it duty? Well, I got to share. What's your motivation to share? The motivation is you've been so transformed by Christ that you can't help but share. About 15 years ago, I was driving home from Denver to Colorado Springs And I was on Highway 83, which is a two-lane highway, going about 65 miles an hour. And coming towards me in the other lane was a truck, and its hood was totally on fire. I mean, it was billowing on fire. And I thought to myself, that's pretty amazing. There's, There's a truck on fire. And so what do I do? I call 911, and I talk to the dispatcher and say, hey, there's a truck on fire driving down the road. Okay. So I was pretty amazed. In that same general area, about two weeks later, I'm driving home, and I see about a million-dollar house up in the, in the distance, totally on blaze, on fire. It's, it's burning down. And I'm about to call 911 again, and I see the fire trucks, and I'm thinking, man, this must be a really hot spot, literally, for things to happen. Now, what would happen if I saw the truck on fire, and I thought to myself, that guy's an idiot. He needs to get his act together. At least he could stop and get out a fire extinguisher and he could could at least get his act together. He could realize what a jerk and idiot he is. Why is he driving down the street? Why is he driving down the road with this car on fire? I could have had that thought. 
But did I think that? No, the first thought I said is that car's going to blow up or something's going to happen. I need to call 911. There was an urgency. And every single one of you, if you see a house on fire, if you see a car on fire, the first instinct is to what? Call for help. You're not going to sit in judgment over the people as to why the fire started. You're not going to worry about all those other things. The main thing is it's on fire. We need the firemen to show up. There's an urgency, right? What if I were to tell you that there are people close to you all around you whose house is not on fire and whose car is not on fire, but if they die without Christ, they will spend eternity in fire. Do you have the same passion? Do you have the same urgency? Do you have the same diligence to warn them of impending danger? Do you love them enough to share with them where they can get rescued? Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. You see his passion? So the first thing that we see here is an invitation to come and see. She's been transformed. She's been changed from the inside out. She's confronted Christ. And she goes back to the town with the invitation, come and see the Christ. Now here's scene number two. If the first one was an invitation to come and see, scene two is an explanation to go and tell. There's really two stories going on here, the way John weaves these together. There's the story of the woman going back to the town, but right here Jesus has a little mini-sermon with his disciples. He gives them an explanation on what evangelism is, what does it mean to go and tell. And so Jesus pulls his disciples aside and gives them an explanation, gives them a a mini-sermon. He's the rabbi, he's the teacher. So let's pick up in verse 31 and look at this sermon, this explanation, this teaching that Jesus gives his disciples. Because the woman's left, she's gone back to the town. Verse 31, meanwhile, so there's two things going on here. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now all around Jesus, there's always these people thinking in human terms. Nicodemus is thinking about birth, childbirth. The woman at the well is thinking about physical water. What are his disciples thinking about? Man, our guy's got to eat. 
He's been out here in the hot of the day. He's been talking to this woman. Let's make sure Jesus has lunch. And so they're asking, Jesus, you need to eat. You need to eat. And what does Jesus say? You don't understand the type of food that I'm eating. And they're thinking to themselves, well, who brought him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I mean, did somebody sneak one in that we weren't looking at? And Jesus is saying, no, listen, let me tell you what my food truly is. What is Jesus' food? What does sustain him? If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, when he's being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, listen to what Jesus' food is. In Matthew 4, 3 through 4, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is Jesus' food? It's the word of God. And what does he say there in verse 34? He makes a very important statement about his mission. What does he say? Jesus said to them, my food, my sustenance, my energy is to what? Do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To accomplish his work. That word accomplish in the original language is the same exact word that Jesus yelled out on the cross when he said it is finished. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, disciples, you're thinking about lunch, you're thinking about food. I'm here on a mission, and my mission is to go to the cross and to die on the cross and to save sinners from their sins and forgive them on the cross and cry out, it is finished on the cross so that I can accomplish, I can finish the work that my Father gave me to do. And so nothing's going to deter me from doing the will of dying on the cross for sin. Later on in John 8, 29, He who sent me is with me, and he's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father. And what is pleasing to the Father? Jesus obeying the mission. What's the mission? To finish the work on the cross. Remember a few weeks ago, or last week, when I said Jesus had to go to Samaria? Why did he have to go? It was his mission. This was part of God's timetable, ultimately leading to the mission of him dying on the cross. And so Jesus says, listen, the first thing you need to understand, disciples, is that I'm on a mission to accomplish the work. But let me give you two points to my sermon. Here's the two-point sermon. Here's point number one. Lost people are all around you ready to hear the gospel. Notice what he says there. If you go back and look at verse... um, 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? That's a proverb. Basically, in that culture, when the wheat or the corn or whatever would start showing, you would know that there would be about four more months until the harvest. It would kind of be like an expression we use that I've heard some people say around here related to corn, like a little saying, knee high by 4th of July. It's kind of a, a little saying. And what's Jesus saying? In agriculture, you've got to wait for the harvest. There's a four-period wait, and, and you're waiting, you're waiting, and then comes the harvest. What he's saying here is in the spiritual realm, the harvest is now. There are people all around you, disciples. The, the field is wide under harvest, and Jesus says, look, open your eyes. Look, the time is now. The fields are white There are people all around you that are ready to receive the gospel. But aren't we often like the disciples? What were they thinking of? Lunch. 
Maybe some of you are thinking about lunch. When's this guy going to get done so I can go take my mom out to lunch? We're so sidetracked. We're so blinded. We're so oblivious. We're so in our own little world. We're, we're, we're kind of going along life with blinders in our own worlds. And Jesus says, let me give you a wake-up call, disciples. Look. Look around you. There are people all around you that are lost, that are dying, that are going to spend eternity without Christ, and you are there under God's sovereign divine appointment to share the gospel with them. Let me give you an exercise this morning. What I want you to do right now, I want you to think of at least just one person in your life right now who does not know Jesus. Who is that one person in your mind that you know does not have a relationship with Christ? That one person. Now that you've got them, it could be a coworker, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, a family member. Who is it that does not know Jesus? And I want to challenge you to do two things that you've got that person in your mind. Number one, would you commit just this week, starting tomorrow, would you commit to pray every day for their salvation? Just make a commitment. Now, I'm not talking to you to pray 365 days. I'm saying this this week. Would you start tomorrow and pray every day, Lord, would you just save them? Would you give me an opportunity to share? Lord, would you do something to, to give me an opportunity? Uh, I understand that the, the fields are wide under harvest. I've got this person. Lord, would you reach them? And number two, not only would you pray, but number two, would you just take a risk and open your mouth and share? Maybe it's a baby step. Maybe it's just like sowing a seed. Maybe it's just a, a friendly word. Or maybe it's a full-blown gospel presentation. Would you commit with that one person to pray for them and to share with them just this week? Now, we need to realize something. God is sovereign over the process, but we need to be obedient in our sharing. Colossians 4, 5-6 says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Are you being wise? Are you making the most of every opportunity? Are you, is your speech gracious? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you, are, you, are you going through life with your eyes open to those around you that need him? The fields are white. It's not an issue if there's not enough lost people around. The issue is there's tons of lost people around. We're just not having our eyes open to their need, and we're not sharing the gospel. So point one, Jesus tells them in this sermon is, there's lost people all around you, disciples. The field is wide unto harvest. Here's point number two of his little mini-sermon. You can rejoice by participating in God's work of salvation either as a sower or a reaper. Notice what he says down there in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. You guys are farmers. I'm not a farmer, so maybe after the service you'll come up and, and correct me. But I'm assuming that harvesting is probably a lot more exciting than sowing. I mean, sowing's kind of, I mean, you sow the seed. And you water the seed. And you kind of wait. But what happens when harvest comes? Do you kind of sit back and relax? Not that I understand around here. When harvest comes, it's all hands on deck. You're out there. Everybody's excited about what's the, what's the crop going to be. So there's a joy in harvesting. We, we love to harvest the wheat because it, it's, it's our income. It's, there's joy. But what about the person that sows? 
And they don't get to benefit in the reaping. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, you can faithfully share the gospel. You can faithfully love a person. You can pray for them. You can plant seeds. You can water those seeds. And it may take years and years. And you may never see them come to faith. And then some guy comes along all of a sudden and just at a coffee shop tells them about Jesus. And there they are on the ground praying to receive Christ as Savior. And you spent five years talking to them. And all of a sudden one guy comes in and they get saved. What Jesus is saying is, listen, some of us sow. We plant seeds. We do the long, arduous work of loving them, of serving them. Other times, you're on the beneficial end where maybe you're just sharing the gospel with someone and they're ready and they receive Christ and you get to have the joy of being there when they, when they trust Christ. And Jesus is saying there should be no competition. There should be no jealousy. All of us have different roles in this process. Another Charles Spurgeon story. He was talking to a young man. This man was praying for his friend. And he, and he told Charles Spurgeon, listen, I've been praying for my lost friend for 20 years now, and I have not seen any results. I've been praying for 20 years, no salvation, no signs of, of, of grace in his life. I mean, why in the world should I keep praying for him? I've been praying for him for these 20 years, and I have not seen anything happen. And Spurgeon said, okay, in these past 20 years, have you ever talked to him about the gospel? Have you ever told him you're concerned about his soul? Have you ever shared your testimony with him? And the man sheepishly said, well, no, I haven't done that. And Spurgeon said, okay, look at that field of corn over there. Let's just suppose I were just to pray that the harvest would come, and I prayed for the harvest, and I prayed for the harvest. In 20 years, I prayed for the harvest, but I never actually planted corn. Would there be a harvest? And the young man said, no. Some of us so some of us reap but there's joy in that paul says this in 1 corinthians 3 7 so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only god who gives the growth see god is sovereign over the process of salvation You can't arm twist a person to come to faith. You can't talk them into it. You can't make them believe. You plant seeds, you share the gospel, you pray, but ultimately God is gonna be the one to bring the harvest. And some of us sow and some of us reap, but it's important that we understand our role in God's plan. But notice, look, verse 36. It says that they both joyfully, the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. And so Jesus is saying there's joy in telling others about Jesus. There's joy in seeing people come to faith in Christ. One of the greatest joys you will have in your life is to see somebody that you love come to faith in Christ and you be a little part of that. You don't talk them into that and you don't make them come to faith in Christ, but you are very instrumental. And it may be your testimony, it may be your words, it may be your investment, but one of the greatest joys of your life, if you've never experienced that, is to see somebody, be a part of somebody coming to faith in Christ. There's great joy in that. So number one was an invitation to come and see. The woman said, come and see. Number two, an explanation to go and tell. Jesus explains, you gotta go and tell. You gotta, the harvest is, is plentiful. Go out there and tell. But here's the third thing we see. A declaration of saving faith. 
Let's continue to read the story because it picks back up with the town where the woman goes back and tells the Samaritans in the town what Christ has done for her. Let's pick up in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now there's great evangelistic success. The woman goes back, she shares her testimony, and what does verse 39 say? Many believe because of the woman's testimony. Literally in the Greek, it's her word of witness. Her word of witness, bearing witness, giving her testimony. She gave her testimony. But let me just give you a little bit of a warning here. As wonderful as your testimony is, it is not the gospel. It's important But what Christ did for you is not the same thing as what Christ did 2,000 years ago on the cross. And I want to help you with this because back about 50 years ago, you could give your testimony and it would be really, really powerful. And I'm not saying your testimonies aren't powerful, but we live in a different culture. Let me me try to illustrate this. We live in a very postmodern culture where everybody wants to be tolerant and and there's no... um, We don't want to make value judgments on people's stories. So every story, every testimony has equal footing in our culture. So, for example, you go to your friend and you share your testimony and you share it passionately and you share it clearly and you share it boldly and you're excited about what Christ has done for you and you should be excited and you should share it boldly. But here's oftentimes what can happen in our culture today. That person may say, well, that's awesome. That's a great testimony. I'm glad it works for you. You've got to be true to what works for you. By the way, let me tell you my testimony of what Buddha has done for me. Let me tell you the testimony of what this new age guru has done for me. I went to this great motivational speaker and they changed my life. And so you see, you could have a great testimony and somebody can come along and maybe have a greater testimony. And so everybody's sharing their testimony and it's all equal footing. And so not one testimony is greater than another. And so everybody's just sharing their stories, which is important. But the one thing that's going to actually bring people to salvation is not just your story, but the gospel story. And one thing we see here is that that happens. Does that mean that you never share your testimony? No, I'm not saying don't share your testimony. I'm just saying understand that when you share your testimony, also share the gospel. Because Romans 1.16 says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yes, We have a perfect example here of the importance of sharing your testimony. This woman shared her testimony. Share your testimony. Share your story. Share it passionately. Tell people what Christ has done for you. Invite them to come and see. But I want to show you something in this text. Notice verse 41. Many more believed because of his word, Jesus. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, We kind of believed you at first with your testimony, but here's the real reason we're believing. We heard for ourselves. 
the word of God. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They believed her testimony. It was a powerful testimony. But here it says that when Christ came and shared the word with them, many more believed and were more fully convinced. So you need your testimony, but more importantly, you need the word, the gospel, the scriptures as the ultimate power for salvation. Because Romans ten seventeen says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the word has to be shared. That's how faith comes. In verse 42, when they say, we know, we've heard for ourselves, and we know. It's, it's in a Greek tense that's very emphatic. It's, it's their way of saying, we are absolutely assured. We are convinced. We are, we are, we are um, certain that this is indeed, what's their confession? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. They're convinced of this. It's not some passing faith. It's like what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. They had been convinced by the Holy Spirit. There was conviction. There was confession. They knew. They were certain that Jesus Christ was indeed the Savior of the world. Remember what John the Baptist said earlier in John 1.29? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Here he's the Savior of the world. In 1 John 4.14, our same author says this, We've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. When Jesus was born in Luke 2.11, what did the angel say? For unto you is born in this day the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The early church in Acts 5.31, what did they confess? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 2 Timothy 1.10, and which we now have manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. They confess Jesus as Savior. Now, for us, it's not a big deal. Yes, Jesus is Savior. But do you realize they lived in the Roman Empire where there were tons of saviors, tons of lords, tons of gods, Greek mythology. The emperor required you once a year to go pinch a, uh, take a pinch of incense on the altar and confess your allegiance to him as your Savior. So to confess Jesus as Savior was a big deal for them because they lived in a culture where all these gods were circling around them. And what they're saying is that Jesus alone is the Savior. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the early church's confession is that Jesus is Savior. Now, how was this expressed in the early church? Some of you may have it on the back of your car. It's called an ichthus. Anybody have an ichthus on the back of their car? You're like, what's an ichthus? Sounds kind of spooky, Sean. It's the fish. The fish. That was the earliest symbol of Christianity, the fish. It's called an ichthus. Now, why was it a fish? Because it reminded the early church that they were to be fishers of men. 
the way that Jesus had caught them. Matthew 4, 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So from the very beginning, the confession of Jesus as Savior was wrapped up in a symbol of the fish to remind them that we need to go be fishers of men and tell other people that Jesus is the Savior. Now, why is it called the ichthus? It's an acrostic. Ichthus, it's an acrostic. The I stands for Jesus, or Jesus in the Greek. Ik, the C-H, stands for Christos, or Christ. T-H, Theos, or God. U, Weos, or Son in the Greek. And then the last word, S, Soter, Savior. So you may never know what the Ichthus stands for. When you put the acrostic together, it stands for this. Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. That was the confession of the early church. Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. And it was emblemized in a fish to remind them that we just can't keep this confession to ourselves. We've got to go share it. We've got to go tell. We've got to be about the business of telling others about Jesus. And what was the motivation? What's your motivation to go do this? Is it because I'm going to arm twist you out of here to say, go share your faith to this week? Is that going to do any good? See, here's the motivation. When you've been transformed by grace the way this woman had, when your life has been radically changed by Jesus, and he's turned you from a sinner into a worshiper, and he's given you the gift of the the satisfying gift of eternal life that flows within you like, like streams of living water, And when he's confronted you as the great I am and he's exposed your sin and he's cleaned you from the inside out and he's released you and he's forgiven you and he's saved you and he's rescued you and he's transformed you and he's done all these wonderful things, you can't help but tell people what he's done. That's where the motivation comes from. It's when you look at the finished work of Christ and see what he did for you there. You've got the information. You've got the knowledge. Do you have the passion? And do you have the urgency? And does it come because your life was transformed? And you want every person that you come in contact with to have that same type of transformed life that Jesus can give them. If God has graciously cleaned the cesspool of your own sin and given you living water, why in the world would you want to keep that to yourself and not tell everybody where to go to drink from the well? I'm calling you to leave your jar. Leave your jar like the woman did and go to everyone you know and say, come and see the Savior who made me whole. Come and see the Savior that changed my life. Are you enthralled by Jesus? Are you amazed by Jesus? Are you captivated by Jesus? If you are, then why in the world would you not share him? Why in the world would you not tell every single person that their life is like a car on fire heading toward eternity without Christ and you've got the 911 call. Come and see Christ. Would you be willing this week to share the gospel boldly? Would you be willing this week to share the gospel joyfully? And would you be willing to tell the gospel powerfully 
Lord, would you grant us the power and the grace to do that this week? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, I have two requests this morning. My first request is for those of us in this room who are believers in Christ. Father, you would give us joyful passion, urgency, motivation to go share. Give us the power to invite others to come and see. Give us the joy to go and tell. Would our confession be that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's the Savior of the world. We want to be fishers of men. We want to go tell others where they can come and drink from his well of eternal life. Father, would you give us the power and the grace and the joy and the motivation to do that this week? And Lord, those, that one person that we thought about earlier, would you give us the motivation to pray for them and to share with them? Father, my other request is for those in this room who have not drunk from the well of Jesus but are still drinking from the well of sin. They have not been transformed by grace. They're still living in sin. They've not left their water jar. They've not left their life of sin. They're still living in that sin. But Lord, today could be their day of release. Oh, Father, would you work in hearts this morning the power of your Holy Spirit to bring sinners to repentance. Would you rescue those that are in sin and bring them to Christ? Lord, would lost people that are in this place today that don't know Christ, would in this moment they turn from their sin and repent and believe in Jesus now? Lord, thank you for this story. I'm so thankful for this woman. We don't even know her name. But you transformed her. You met her where she was. You changed her life. And all she could do was go back and just tell people. Lord, I want to be that kind of person. Lord, I want it to be contagious where we really don't care what people think. We're just going to go say, listen, look and see what Christ has done for me. He can do it for you. Lord, may we be women at the well type people. Sinners saved by grace who've been so transformed but we can't help but go share and be fishers of men and tell people that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Would you give us the strength and the joy and the hope to do that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.